You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, you turn to Hebrews 12. We're going to continue our series through the book of Hebrews. This is week 15 of this sermon series. We have two more of these after today. And then we will be fully in our Advent sermon series, preparing for Christmas, which is crazy to think about, but it's here. Um, As we get started here, I need your help with something. I did not know that Tom was going to have you raise your hand earlier, so apparently it's Wycliffe Sunday and Raise Your Hand Sunday. But I'm going to need some help here, okay? So I'm going to ask you a question. Um, I want you to raise your hand if you believe that um, regular exercise is good for you. It should be everybody, okay? Um, (laughs) uh, People just in just full-on denial, just like, I ain't doing it. I won't put my hand up, okay? I'm committed, all right? No. More specifically, raise your hand if you think that running regularly would be good for you. Okay, a few less, but ultimately we still know it's good, okay? So this one's gonna take a little more honesty, a little more transparency from you, okay? How many of you run regularly? More in the 9.30 than the 8. Interesting, okay? Hey, no shame on that. We're all looking at you, but no shame. I want you to notice something about that second question. Where was my hand? It was down, because I don't run, okay? Unless there's a ball involved or someone chasing me, I don't do it. I think it's the silliest way you could possibly exercise ever, okay? Wow. An applause. Some amens. Some people are worshiping in here, okay? No, um... I do like to exercise. I love basketball and I, do, and I play it as much as I can, you know. I'm going to keep the wheels moving, but I'm not going to run. Uh, I just don't want to do it. Um, I want to clarify real quick. This is not an illustration about why you should be exercising or more specifically why being a good steward of your physical body is a good thing. Okay, that's a sermon for a different day. Um, Paul does say this in 1 Timothy 4. He says bodily training is of some value. should be on the screen. Bodily training is of some value. That's not what this sermon's about. Because he goes on to say that godliness is of value in every way um, as it holds promise for the present life, this life, and also for the life to come. That's what this sermon is about. Um, Here's the point. I asked you two questions. Who believes that running regularly would be good for you? And most everybody raised their hand. And then another question that goes, who runs regularly? And significantly less people raise their hand. The question I have for us uh, pertaining to this sermon is why? It's not a trick question. Why, do, why was the second question a lot less hands? Because running is hard, okay? Because it's not fun. Because when you decide, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to run. There's any number of things that would be a better decision to make in that moment. Like you could, it's so easy to make excuses, okay? And even when I see someone running, and every once in a while, there's probably an illustration here about sin too, but every once in a while I see somebody running, I go, you know what? I should do that. And then I start it, and you know what I do? quit because it's, it's not fun. Okay. That's, that's the reason why ultimately what's going on in us with that is we know that it's good for us, but few of us do it because it, it, it's going to cost us because it's going to cost. And we make the decision that it's not worth it to us. The cost is not worth it. And I mentioned that because that's what's going on in Hebrews 12. The author of Hebrews writes this letter to a group of people whose lives of following after Jesus had begun to cost them more than they thought that it would. 
And so they had gotten to the point where they're ready to throw in the towel. They're ready to give up on Jesus to choose an easier and more comfortable path, right? And like I said before, it's not hard to make excuses when life gets difficult. When life gets hard, it's really easy for us to go, I'm not going to do that anymore. I was going to, but you know, it's easy for us to do that, especially when we don't think it's worth it, right? My guess is most of you don't love getting up to go to work most days. Some of you do, but even if you love your job, there are days you get up and you don't want to go to work, but what do you do? You go because the paycheck you get on Friday makes it worth getting up on Monday, right? It's worth it. And so Hebrews writes this letter to a group of people who are trying to decide, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? And the author of Hebrews is going to say to them over and over and over and over again, I get it, life is hard, um, but Jesus is better. And don't give up despite the cost because Jesus is better, right? And we're approaching broken record status at this point because it's been 11 and a half chapters of this over and over and over again. If you haven't been here with us, I'm going to summarize it briefly. Chapter one, he says that the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ is better or superior to the revelation that came from the Old Testament prophets. And that's not because the Old Testament prophets weren't speaking the word of God, they were. It's because Jesus is the word of God. Think John one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And who's that talking about? Jesus. Verse 14, it says the word became flesh, that Jesus came, that he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the word that comes from him is better than the Old Testament prophets because Jesus is God himself. In chapter two and three, he says, Jesus is better than Moses. So don't give up. Don't go back to the old covenant. He's better than Moses. Chapter four, he's better than Joshua. Joshua led the people through the wilderness after Moses and brought them into the promised land and, and entered into a season of rest. And his point there is that the rest that Jesus offers to us is better than the rest that Joshua was able to provide. Chapter five through eight, Jesus is better than Aaron or the priesthood that came after him, meaning he's a mediator of a better covenant. The basis of our relationship with God through Christ is better than the relationship uh, through the high priesthood. Chapter nine, Jesus is the better tabernacle. Again, over and over and over again. Chapter 10, Jesus is better sacrifice. He provides better access for people like you and me. I want you to see this. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw near. This is true for us, for you and me, those of us who by faith are joined to Jesus and we've had our sin, past, present, and future washed. And again, I get it, broken record, right? Over and over and over again. This is his point. Jesus is better, don't give up, despite the cost, he is worth it. What we saw in the first part of chapter 12 last week is he was trying to help them understand how the pain that they were experiencing in their life was not evidence that God had abandoned them but rather the pain in their life was evidence that God had adopted them into uh, his family, that they belonged to him as children. And just in case you weren't here, I want you to see this in the Bible. Verse seven, chapter 12 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And the answer to that question is, there's not one. There is no legitimate son who is not disciplined by his father. If that is the case, then the father doesn't love his kids. But for us, our father does. He does love us, right? So he's saying this is evidence that we belong to him as children. Remember, this discipline here doesn't mean punishment. It means training. And he says this in verse 10, for they disciplined us, that's our earthly parents, for a short time, 
as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Bible is saying to you this morning, if you are in a painful season of your life, God has not abandoned you. He's not abandoned you. In fact, it's evidence that he loves you and there is actually a goal in your pain that God is cultivating something in you. Verse 10 says it's for our good, which means the discipline that you're experiencing, that we experience as as followers of Jesus is part of the process of God planting something in us to produce what he calls a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Again, he's better. Don't give up. Despite the cost, he's worth it. And then look at what he says in verse 12. I want you to get your eyes on the scriptures here. What's the first word in verse 12? Therefore. Which means that whatever he's about to say is in light of what he has just said. And what has he just said? That since God is at work in the pain of your life, not to punish you, but to train you, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Before we talk about what this means, I want you to notice something about what he just said, because he just used running language. And what's interesting is the author of Hebrews actually sandwiches this section about discipline from verse 3 to 11. He actually puts running language on both sides of it, what we just read, and then what he says back in verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He describes the Christian life as a race that is to be run. And we learn in verse 1 that Uh, It's not a sprint because you don't need endurance to run a sprint, right? Um, He's saying that it's a journey, which means for us that faithfulness to God in your life is not about a few special performances. It's about uh, persistence. It's about steady persistence, persistence day after day saying yes to Jesus and following after him in big moments and in small moments of your life, right? It means that the work that God is doing in your life is a process. It's not an event. And we need to think about our lives of following Jesus this way, and particularly when it comes to the pain that we experience. Again, I'm not a runner. I don't think it takes a runner to understand, verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I don't think this guy's about to set a PR. Right? And and this means you're tired. That's what he's saying. He's, He's acknowledging the fact that the life of following Jesus is not always Skittles and rainbows. And yet we think it should be. He says, strengthen your drooping hands and, and, and strengthen your weak knees, right? This means you're tired. And not the kind of tired where you're like, dude, if you can just push through for a little bit longer, you're going to catch your second wind. It's going to be awesome. That's what people tell me about running. You know? You're like, you just got to push through, and then it's going to be awesome. I mean, maybe I'm just weak. I don't know. I never made it to that point, all right? This is not what he's talking about here. Here's how I know. Uh, this word translated weak here, it's, where, it's a Greek word where we get our English word paralyzed, In fact, four out of five times that it's used in the New Testament, it's translated paralyzed. Here it's translated weak. So the author says, strengthen your weak, paralyzed knees. Let me ask you this. How does someone who is paralyzed strengthen their knees? They don't. They can't. And again, this is metaphorical language used to describe discipleship. And I think he says it this way because he knows, and and this is true about our cultures. I look around. This is how we view the Christian life. That when life is not Skittles and rainbows, when it's painful, when we're in difficult seasons of our life, we think one of two things. Either one, God must not love me. 
Because if he did, he wouldn't let this happen to me. Or the other side, we think he must be punishing me for something I've done wrong. And so we think it's up to us to work our way back into God's favor so the bad things that we're going through won't keep happening. And yet Hebrews 12 says God's not only allowing it, he's actually introducing difficult circumstances into your life because he's trying to create something in you. He's trying to cultivate and produce something in your life, right? This is what the therefore in verse 12 is there for. It's pointing us back to the love of a heavenly father and ultimately to the beginning of the chapter where he says, run the race with endurance. He tells us how, look at verse two. Here's how you run the race with endurance. You look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, that's where strength comes from in the Christian life when you think I couldn't possibly take another step. You look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. It says in verse 13, we make straight paths for our feet, which means we quit looking to other things and other people to provide for us what only Jesus can. And don't we do that often when life is is tough? Like when life's great, like you don't really feel like you have to go somewhere else. When life gets hard, we start to think, man, I have to go around Jesus rather than go to him to get what I need in this moment to be satisfied. And again, the Bible is saying to a group of people who are hurting and broken and confused and tired, don't give up. Jesus is better. Despite the cost, he is worth it. Church, the Bible's saying the same thing to us this morning. That the Christian life is a journey. It's not a sprint. That God is at work even through the pain in your life. And it's not about a, a, a few special performances. It's about steady persistence. Day after day, looking to Jesus and making the decision to follow him. That regardless of the cost, he is worth it. And I think the question that God wants each of us to answer from this passage this morning is, is he worth it to me? Is Jesus worth it to you? There is a cost. Is he worth it to you? We all know running would be good for us. Most of us don't do it because of the cost. Jesus says in John 10, he says, there is an enemy and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If you've been around church, you likely heard that verse before. Uh, Who is the they that Jesus is talking about here? That they may have life and have it abundantly. He answers it in verse 11. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The they he's talking about is his sheep. And he goes on in verse 27 of the same chapter. He says, my sheep, this is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That is who receives the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. Not somebody who made a decision one time, yes, he's worth it, but somebody who day after day after day counts the cost, looks down the path of discipleship and says, he's worth it. This hurts, but he's worth it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to endure. I'm going to follow after Jesus, the ones who listen to what he says and are obedient to his word. And again, here's the thing. Most of us know that it would be best for us ultimately if we just got off the fence and we put all our chips in on following Jesus. Most of us know that that would be better for us. We don't all do it. Why? Because there's a cost. There is a cost. In church, Jesus never promises us an easier or more comfortable life. What he promises us, we saw in John 10 just now, is the abundant life. That word means surpassing or the life that satisfies. Right? It's, it's unlike the life that's offered to us by the little G God of this world where you spend all of your waking hours, days, and all your money chasing uh, the thing that we think we need to be happy. That's the life, in a nutshell, offered to us by the God of this world. 
that if, if you're not married, maybe it's, if I could just get married, then my life would be what I want it to be. If, if we could just have kids, or if I could just get this promotion, or if we could just get a little bit more money, or a little bit bigger house, or a little bit nicer car, or whatever it is, and we spend our life chasing, believing the lie from the enemy that the thing that we need to be satisfied is more of what we already have. Church, the, what you need to be satisfied in your life is not more of what you already have, right? The author of Hebrews calls that the, the shakable kingdom. We'll see that here in a bit. It's a kingdom that can't support the weight that you're asking of it. So the point is this, you cannot do both. I said this last week, I'm gonna say it again. Jesus is either king of your life or he's not. He is either the good shepherd and as his sheep, you listen to his voice and you're working to follow after him with your life or as you look down the path of discipleship and you see what it's gonna cost you to follow him and what you're gonna have to let go of and what you're gonna have to leave behind, you look down that path, you count the cost and you say, I think I might know a better way. He is either king of your life or he's not. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about in verse 13 when he says, make straight paths for your feet. He's saying, quit meandering about with one foot in and one foot out. He goes, I know it's hard. He's already acknowledged it. He's not dismissing the difficulty of following Jesus, right? I know it's hard. I know you're tired, but he says, come this way. Come this way because he's worth it. Make straight paths for your feet because he's worth it. And then in the next few verses, verses 14 to 17, he actually lists off some things that should be true about us if we look down the path and we go, yeah, he's worth it, and I'm gonna go after him. We're gonna hit those toward the end because there's something I want you to see first. Um, what, what the author of Hebrews does at the end of chapter 12 is a little bit interesting, um, and it's something actually he's done the whole time. He's trying to convince them uh, to not give up that, and to help them answer the question, is Jesus worth it? That's what he's been doing in this whole book, but he takes a really different approach to it this time. What he does, we'll see this here in a second, is he describes two different mountains. So he presents an image of two different mountains. And again, this is all trying to help them and help us make the decision of is Jesus worth it. The, the two mountains are Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And he describes the, the experience of the people of God at Sinai and Zion. And Sinai is representative of the old covenant through Moses and Zion is representative of the new covenant, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the son of God. And these mountains don't just give us a picture of like, you know, the old and the new covenant. It's actually a picture for us of what life with God is like, what life with God and relationship with him should look like as the Christian. So I'm gonna read this for us and then we'll talk about what it means. We're gonna start with Sinai, look at verse 18. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What this is describing is the period of redemptive history where God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness to Mount Sinai where he gave them what? The law. So there's this experience, and you can read about it in Exodus 19 and 20, and I actually encourage you to do that this afternoon. We don't have time today. We're gonna read a snippet of it. But if you read Exodus 19 and 20, you can, you can really understand what those few verses are talking about by the author of Hebrews. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 18 says this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, and the people were afraid and trembled and here's the key phrase, and they stood far off. 
And they said to Moses, you can speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. What the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate as he describes this scene is when God spoke at Sinai, when he was giving them the thing that they needed, the law, to show them how to live their life and to strengthen their weak knees and to lift their drooping hands, when he spoke at Sinai, the response of his people was to beg for distance. That's what he's saying. At Sinai, with this mountain over here, the response of the people was, instead of moving toward him, they kept their distance, they cower in fear. That's the first mountain, Sinai. Here's the second one, Zion, verse 22. He says, you haven't come to that mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he says, you haven't come to Sinai, you've come to Zion. Now, what is Zion? You've probably passed several Mount Zion Baptist churches in your life, okay? They're everywhere. Every rural road, there's a Mount Zion. Um, But you may not know what that's referring to, why that name is so popular, because in the Old Testament, Zion was a hill or a mountain. It was a a hill where the Jebusites, its enemies of God, had taken, uh, established a stronghold And then King David leads the people of Israel, the army of Israel, to then take it back, to capture it. Later, David makes Mount Zion his home, and ultimately, it's where the temple is built. And so, Mount Zion is representative of God's presence with his people, and it's representative of really the entire city of Jerusalem. But what this guy's talking about here is not the literal Mount Zion in Israel. He's not talking about Mount Sinai in Israel and Mount Zion in Israel. You know them. He's talking about the experience that God's people had at Sinai with the receiving of the law. And he talks about Zion. It's not the literal Mount Zion. We know that because in verse 18, he says, you have not come to what may be touched. And then in 22, he says, you've come to the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. This is talking about the the reality of our identity as children of God, being citizens of the kingdom of God. And he compares these two mountains. And he presents them in front of us. And there's Sinai where God's people begged for distance and Zion to which we have been invited to draw near. It's actually what this word means in verse 22 when he says, but you haven't come to the one that can be touched, but you have come to Zion. You have come. That one word in the original language is the same word that shows up. We read it earlier in Hebrews 10. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Draw near and you have come. It's the same word. So with Sinai, it was fear and distance from God, but with Zion, rather, it's drawing near to God. And church, what we have to understand about this is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not different. And yet I think we assume that it's the case sometimes, right? Because you read the Old Testament or, or you think about God there and you think about him being full of wrath and just angry and bitter, right? But the New Testament God is, is loving and he's gentle, It's like as he's gotten older, he's mellowed out a little bit or something. But the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means his character and his nature doesn't change from from Zion to Sinai or vice versa. And when it says here in verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And before that, if even a beast touches the mountain, mountain shall be stoned. This is talking about the disparity between a holy God being approached by a sinful people. That even even if a cow touched the mountain, it should be killed. That's what was going on here. There was no access to God at Sinai. 
It was begging for distance. It was terrified, right? And, and what we have to understand here, though, is that God hasn't changed from Sinai to Zion. So what has changed? What's changed is the basis of our access to him. Look at verse 24. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And the message of the old covenant was stay away. The message of the new covenant in Christ through his blood is drawn near. Meaning, every, every reason that you and I should be disqualified from having access to come to a holy God has been paid for in full by the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. And verse 24 says that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's that about? Um, if you know the story in Genesis 4, Abel is the first murder in the Bible. And his, he's killed by his brother Cain out of jealousy. And God is God, so he knows what's going on. But he goes to Cain and he asks him, he said, hey, where's your brother? Hadn't seen him in a while. And he responds, it's actually kind of comedic. He responds the way my kids do when they get in trouble and the way I do when you get caught in something, but you don't want to admit it, like you just go on, I don't care what it takes. I will lie. It doesn't matter, right? You just get defensive and start act out. So God says to him, hey, where's your brother? And he goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? To the God of the universe, he says this, right? It's, again, it's comedic. And uh, God replies, essentially, Genesis 4, verse 15. He says, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground for vengeance. And the word vengeance there means it requires a punishment. And so his point is, what you have done demands a punishment. This blood, that's the word, he says. When it, the, the word that's spoken by the blood of Abel from the ground is that a punishment is required. And the author of Hebrews says that Christ's blood on the cross speaks a better word because rather than requiring a punishment, what does his blood do? Satisfies a punishment. Again, all the reasons why you and I if we were to even turn our attention to a holy God, we should be killed in a moment, are gone because of what Christ has done for us to satisfy the punishment that we deserve to pay. And so this is the Bible's answer to the question, is Jesus worth it? Presents these two mountains, right? Is Jesus worth it? And we put Sinai up there and he, and he puts Zion up there and essentially he says this, what do you think? Is Jesus worth it? What do you think? And, and, and again, he's acknowledging their pain. I know your arms are tired. I know your, your knees are weak and you're thinking about giving up. But he says in verse two, look to Jesus. This is where the strength comes from. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's seated, which means he has completely finished the work of fulfilling the law of God on our behalf. You know that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was not nullified. It was fulfilled completely in Jesus He's forever secured for us not only right standing with God, but also adoption to him as sons and daughters. So the question is, is Jesus worth it? The Bible says, absolutely he is. And yet, we have to respond. You have to respond. It's, look what he says in verse 25. He says this. It's a warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And that's Jesus. The, the good news of the gospel, what's spoken of by his blood, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ on your behalf. He says, see that you do not refuse him. And then he says this, for if they, that's 
Old Testament Israel, if they didn't escape when they refused him, Moses, who warned them on earth, then much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, because he's seated at the right hand of God right now. Um, we have to respond. Like I said before, God has not changed. He is no less holy, and his wrath burns no less bright than it did at Sinai, right? God hasn't changed, but what has changed is the basis of our access to him, right? So we don't have to live in fear and trembling unless, he says here, unless we reject him. If you reject Jesus, then there is no invitation to Sinai. All that's, to Zion, rather, all that's left to you is Sinai. All that's left for you, if you reject Jesus, is it's up to you to do enough and be enough to earn your way into God's love and approval. And let me just tell you, that's impossible. This is what the author of Hebrews warns them to make the right decision of the question of, is Jesus worth it? And he says in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him. And then he tells us what's at stake in verse 26 and 27. Look with me. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. And that's talking about God's voice when he gave the law at Sinai, all right? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And you may be smarter than me, but... When I read this passage earlier this week, when I was getting ready to preach, my first thought was, huh? <laughs> what? And so, you know, I did. I read it again. And then I thought, huh? <laughs> I don't know. Um, here's what I think this means. I spent a lot of time on it. I'll take my best stab. At Sinai, when God spoke, when he gave the law, the mountain shook. Like you can read it in Exodus 19. It legitimately trembled. There was an earthquake because of the voice of God and the storm, and there's the shaking that happened then. Um, and then what he says is, there's coming a day where there will be another shaking that happens. Only, it's not gonna be limited geographically. Because the, the shaking that happened at Sinai was only there in the Middle East, right? The, but what he says here is, the shaking that will come, everything in all of creation that does not have its foundation in Christ will be destroyed. That's what he says. And then look at verse 28. He says, therefore, since that's true, since God hasn't changed, since the only thing that has changed is our basis of our access to him, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So the proper response is not to reject Jesus, but rather to offer God two things. First one, he says, a heart of gratitude that we would actually be grateful when we see who God is, what he's done, and what we deserve from him, and yet what we've been given in Christ, it should cultivate in our hearts gratitude. And the second thing is that he calls it acceptable worship. Let us offer acceptable worship to God. This word acceptable doesn't mean what we typically mean by the word acceptable. So if you gave me something and it was acceptable, or if something's acceptable, you would say, I don't really love it, but it'll do. Right? That's what we mean by acceptable. That's not what this means. God's not looking for that from us. Don't really love it, but I guess, you know, that's not what he's going for. The word here uh, literally means pleasing. So he says, since this is who God is and what he's done, and since we deserve to be stoned for even looking in that direction, right? But Christ has invited us not to Sinai, but to Zion. Since that, let's offer God hearts of gratitude, he says, and acceptable worship. So the question we have to answer is, what worship is acceptable to God? And, and likewise, what's unacceptable? Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, 
without faith, it is impossible to please God. And in, in that verse, when it says to please, it's actually the same root word that we see here, acceptable, it's just the verb form. So what he's saying is the only way to offer God worship that would please him is under, through the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that if it's not for who he is and what he's accomplished for you, we would never be brought in. Which shows us that the work that we do for God, the worship that we offer him, does not earn us love and approval from God. That's given to us by gift from Jesus, right? He says we worship him from a place of being loved and approved, offering it pleasing worship to God through faith. And the word worship here, it means to serve. That's why we call this a worship service. You ever thought about that? Which service are you going to go to today? Which says that if you're going to a worship service, you're not just walking in this room to consume what's been prepared for you by the professionals, right? That we are gathering as God's people in his church to offer him something and to offer some, uh, one another something from a place of faith and being loved and approved of by God through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. We gather to, to cultivate hearts of gratitude and to offer to God what he and he alone deserves from us. So this is talking about what we do in here when we gather on the weekends. It's also talking about what we do in our lives, like the lives we live, the way that we serve God with every moment of our days. Um, the argument in Hebrews is therefore, right? Since God is this loving father who knows what's best for his children and he always does what's best, since that's who he is, he wants you to live your life in a way that is pleasing to him. You live your life as a follower of Jesus in a way that's pleasing to him. Firstly, we worship him and him alone. And then he says it here at the end of verse 28, with reverence and awe. Worship God with reverence and awe. So this word reverence, it means right fear. There's a right kind of fear and a wrong kind of fear in the gospel. The wrong kind of fear is we don't, we don't fear God like Sinai. We don't live our life afraid that God might punish us if we mess up at any moment. No, that's the wrong kind of fear. The right kind of fear is, the, is that what shakes us out of our casually approaching God, it leads us to see him for actually who he is and what he's done, and it creates what he says here, awe in us. Awe in us. Now, we don't use the word awe very much, not in this way, not A-W-E. We might say, awe. That's a different kind of awe. That was a joke. Nobody liked it. It's okay. I'll, I'll take that one out of the next time. Um, the word we do use often, though, is the word awesome, okay? So yesterday afternoon, I had a friend from college who was in town with his family, and we went and met them down at, they wanted to go to River Street, um, down by the river, would hang out or whatever. I don't go north of Victory Drive very often. I stay south. That's just where my people are. That's where I live, right? So we went up there. We made the trek. It took us forever. Basically went to South Carolina yesterday. <laughs> and... Uh, we hung out up on the river, and it was, it was great. There were, uh, it was good to see them. Seven kids under seven. And we went to a, into a restaurant. <laughs> it's like, God bless those people, right? We went and got pizza, and it was great. And we were walking out. It actually was surprisingly good pizza. Uh, and he goes, man, that pizza was awesome. And I thought, you know, about this text or whatever, preacher, everything's a sermon illustration. So um, I thought, is it really? Like, does it inspire awe in you? Or is it just good pizza? You know, if you think about the last 20 times that you've used the word awesome, it probably didn't actually inspire awe in you. It's just pizza, right? It just tastes pretty good and, and, and satisfied your hunger for a second. But um, there is something that should inspire awe in us. And it is the reality that the all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God of the universe 
has made a way for sinners like you and me to come to him without fear of what might happen to us if we haven't done enough. That's awesome. This should be one of the things that informs our gathering to worship him and living lives of worship, and there should be nothing casual about it. And I don't mean that when we come in here, we have to always be serious and there's no fun. If, if that's what you think Christian life is and you're not reading your Bible, but there's a level where I do think that in our lives, the things that we do a lot, we just get used to them and it, and it lacks the, the, the weight that it needs. And Hebrews 12, as it's casting this vision for us, here are the mountains. Is Jesus worth it? And, and inviting us down the path of discipleship, saying, come this way. And do it with reverence and awe. And as he closes this chapter, he wants to remind us that the God of Sinai is the same as the God of, of Zion. And he warns us. There's a warning here. And he quotes Deuteronomy 4, which is actually Moses reminding the people of Israel what happened at Sinai. And he says in verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. Which means he's the same. The same holiness the same wrath towards sin, the same thing that thundered and shook the mountain, that God is the same. And yet, the base of our, of our access has changed. And so, for those of us who are in Christ, the consuming fire is no threat. Why? Because we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, right, who has made us perfect through his shed in blood. He has shed blood. He has secured for us access to an unshakable kingdom. For those of us in Christ, there is no threat of the consuming fire, but make no mistake, apart from Jesus, we are all building kingdoms that will one day be destroyed. When the Lord comes back, it will crumble on us. That's what he's saying here. So we must all answer the question for ourselves and how we're gonna respond, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it to you? And if our answer is yes, then the proper response is to offer our lives to him. Right? To look down the path, to count the cost, to say Jesus is better day after day, steady persistence, faithfully following him. Right? Remember earlier I said there's a list of things that should be true about us. We don't have much time here. I want to give you just two quick things that should be true about you if you've said yes to Jesus. Look at verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The word strive here, and see to it, uh, they are, or the word strive rather, is it, it, it means pursue, it means chase after. And it's used in the negative and the positive in the Bible. So the negative is translated persecute. So the way that, that someone would persecute you, and the positive, I want you to chase after, and he says, peace with everyone. And when I read that, I thought, everyone? And because some people are difficult, right? And if you didn't get that, then you're one of those people, right? But this is, he says, this is discipleship. Following Jesus, and it's connected to our holiness that we would pursue peace with everyone. Remember last week, he said the goal of the discipline of the Lord, even relationships and pursuing peace with people who are difficult or peace with people who have harmed us, the discipline of the Lord is so that we might share in his holiness, that God is trying to cultivate something in us. Verse 15, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And if you're paying attention after all this time, you go, how does someone fail to obtain the grace of God? I thought that was a gift. How can we fail to obtain it? Well, there's two primary ways. One, you reject that it can be true, that it counts for you. And so what we do is we, we receive the gift of Jesus, but we also add to it. 
and we think God accepts us and he loves us based on what we can do on top of what Christ has done for us, that's one way to fail to obtain it because it cheapens God's grace and it says that Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross wasn't good enough. That's one way. Or the other way is we presume that God's grace is going to cover us no matter what, so we don't pursue holiness at all. And like in verse 5, it says you, you regard lightly the discipline of the Lord and we think about the cost of what, you know, the punishment or the consequence rather for our sin. And we do it anyways because we go, I don't really, it didn't really matter that much. We know better than God does. That's how you fail to obtain the grace of God. But he doesn't just say, see to it that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God. He says, see to it that no one does. Which means that the call in our life is to not just look out for ourselves, but to look out for those who are around us. And he says the same thing about bitterness in verse 15. See to it that this bitterness doesn't sink down in your heart because it can spring up in you and cause all sorts of problems in your life and in the lives of the people around you. And so the point here, we said earlier, the Christian life is to be run. Run with endurance. And what he's saying here in verse 14 and 15, he says, don't run alone. Don't run alone. Right? And, and we need to understand here, this isn't a suggestion. He's not essentially saying, hey, give it a shot. You should maybe consider joining a communion group if you want to, if you're not that busy. That's not what he's saying. It's an imperative. This strive after, this see to it is a command from God, not an option. Right? Uh, Mary Elizabeth and I lately, we've been looking for a new car. Uh, we have a minivan which can hold all of our people, but our people are getting bigger. Our little people are not so little anymore, right? And so they can hold, it can hold our people, but not all our stuff and our people. So we've been looking for cars and exploring all the options. There's a lot of options, right? Um, we already have a DVD player, so that's one option that's apparently a must for us, according to my wife. Um, I have to remember not to say that next sermon. She'll be here. Um, <laughs> we saw a car this week that had not just heated seats, which is great in the winter. It had cooled seats. And if you have that, you, you need to be cultivating a heart of gratitude to God, okay? Because that is a gift. When it's hot, cooled seats, right? You know what? I was thinking we need that, right? But that's an option for a car, to have cooled seats. It's not necessary. You know what is necessary? An engine, transmission, wheels, okay? Because cooled seats aren't necessary to get you where you need to go. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that you walking in actual community with other Christians is necessary to get you where you need to go. And I want to say this, even though I don't have time for it, there is a way for you to hear that and go, you know what, I am going to get in the community group and you're going to do it just to check the box and say, look, I did it. And that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about pursuing peace, striving, looking out for the people around us, not running alone, living an actual transparent relationship where not everybody, but somebody in your life knows what's in there and can help you not fail to obtain the grace of God, someone who can come alongside you and say, hey buddy, I think you're, you're missing it a little bit here, you're falling short of what God's grace is about, and you're trying to add to the gospel, it's not up to you to earn, or someone who can come alongside you and say, hey, I think you are taking lightly the discipline of the Lord here, and you're walking in a way that's dangerous. Like We need people in our lives to help us do this, and so as a command and not an option, he says, don't run alone, right? Um, and so the question I have for you is, who are those people for you? Who are those people for you? That's the first thing, and then we'll do this one quickly. The second one, verse 16. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you might be wondering what sexual morality has to do with Esau. And actually, it's, it's a, even if you're familiar with the Bible, it's a challenging thing because 
if you know his story, it has nothing to do with sexual morality, right? Esau was a hunter. Genesis chapter 25, he, he was a hunter. We don't know how long he was away from home, presumably a long time because he was so hungry, it forced him to make a really dumb decision. And we've all been there, like in little small places, you get real hungry, you snap at somebody. This was a really dumb decision, like the dumbest of all decisions from being hangry. Um, and so he gets back and his brother's making some stew and he says, hey, let me get some of that. Uh, that's the Clint standard version, not the English standard version. <laughs> let me get some of that. And then his brother says, okay, I'll give you some, but you have to trade me your inheritance for it. And he saw essentially like all of it. And Jacob goes, yeah. And so he's okay. So he trades his inheritance from his father as the firstborn for a, a single meal, Hebrew says. For one single meal, he trades what God was going to do in and through him for the rest of his life to satisfy momentary appetite. And that is why I think this is here connected to sexual morality because it's about appetite. Physical appetite meant more to Esau in the moment than, than what God was going to do in and through his life. And he, he looked down the path of discipleship and he saw the cost, hunger and adversity and, he, and, he, and rather than trusting that his, that his heavenly father who loves him was at work in his life, he goes, no, no, I know a better way. For a single meal, he sold his birthright. Here's the second thing that should be true about us if we're going to follow Jesus with our lives is, is don't ruin your dinner. And I expected I was going to have more time to explain what that means. And you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. When I was a kid, uh, I was always hungry, always. So I was always eating. And I'd be in the kitchen, get something, you know, late afternoon or whatever, my mama would come in there and she'd say, you're going to ruin your dinner. And dinner was going to be the same. And it was ready for me. But what she meant was, if you eat that lesser satisfying thing, by the time you get to what is coming for you, you won't be able to enjoy it the way you should. And I think that's what this is talking about. Esau chose momentary satisfaction of his desires over what God had promised he would ultimately do in and through him. The Bible says that God puts us in difficult circumstances to grow us and to mature us, but oftentimes we use them as a justification for sin. I know I shouldn't, but I'm hungry. I know, but I'm tired, right? And again, we can always make ex excuses, but uh, what that's talking about is the path that's crooked. And in verse 13, he says, come this way. Make straight paths for your feet. So here's the last question and we'll be done. What are the single meals in your life? What are the things in your life that, that tempt you away from the path of discipleship? Because here's the reality, there is a cost and it's saying no to whatever those things are, but Jesus is worth it. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing and respond. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy and thank you that you love us. Thank you that every day we wake up, there are an innumerable amounts of reasons why we should be disqualified. And yet there is one reason that we are not and it's Jesus. And so help us, God, as your church to be the church. Help us to sing and respond. God, would you speak to us what we need? Would you encourage our hearts? Would you challenge us? Would you allow us to follow you faithfully, to count the cost, to see that you're worth it, to say yes to you day after day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.